If you have a Bible, you're going to need it, and we're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians. I do apologize. If you're following along with sermon notes, it says 2 Thessalonians. That's, that's my mistake. It should say 1 Thessalonians, uh, because as someone pointed out to me a moment ago, there are not five chapters in 2 Thessalonians, but there are five chapters in 1 Thessalonians. So turn back a page, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to read 12 verses from verses, or, or pardon me, starting in verse 12. We'll read our passage, and then I'd like to go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly because of their work. In other words, be kind to your pastors, okay? Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the believers, all the brothers, pardon me. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Of course, this is the, the concluding portions of Paul's letter to his friends in Thessalonica. That's why it reads much like a letter. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these words that we have just read would resonate in our hearts, Father. Everything else that is said, apart from what's spoken in your word, Father, would perhaps only maybe help slightly. But Father, your word is sufficient, and so we need not uh, help you apply the word to our lives or help you make it clear to us. Father, we trust your spirit for that, but for, Father, for these next few moments, I pray that in some way we would uh, gain a greater grasp. Father, help us, I pray. Amen. As I mentioned, uh, we're in a series in 2 Thessalonians, but we're taking a, just a brief pause, not out of the series, but just out of 2 Thessalonians, and Paul, Pastor Paul will resume uh, our study next week in the book of 2 Thessalonians. But what I want to try and accomplish is by taking a look at 1 Thessalonians, this particular portion of Scripture, I want to pull out a theme that I think is present for us in both books. And so, in, in, a, in some small sense, we're, we're coming up for air a little bit, okay, in this week. Uh, two weeks ago, I had a chance to serve at Camp Qantas for a week, and uh, I, I wasn't here in the office, but I was down at camp, and I was just helping out, and one of the afternoons, it was a day much like today, a hot, sunny day, it was in the afternoon, and I joined a, a junior high boys discussion group, and I wasn't the leader, but I just sat in, and it was a group of boys who happened to be from our area, that's why I chose that group, and I just wanted to hang with them for a while, and uh, I didn't lead the discussion, I didn't ask the questions, I was just listening and kind of participating a little bit. But one of, the, one of the boys, and I, I forget the exact question, but the question had something to do with what are your pursuits? What are the things that you're treasuring? What are the things that you value and why? And his response struck me, and he said something to the effect of, I want only the best life now. Like, I want, I want to just make my life count for something. He said, I only get one life, and I want to make it count. And I thought, wow, here's a grade seven boy who wants his life to mean something. He's looking for meaning 
in life. And to my knowledge, this boy doesn't know Jesus. He's probably heard about Jesus because he's at camp. But to my knowledge, he doesn't have a relationship with Jesus maybe quite yet. But nevertheless, he wants his life to count. He wants his life to mean something. And here as a pastor, I work mostly with youth and young adults. And uh, I hear these kind of questions a lot. Things like, what's the Lord's will for my life? I want my life to have meaning. Or things like, what university should I go to? Or should I pursue him or her? And usually if it's him, it's, yeah, maybe not. You know, but but uh, I get to help people kind of work through these ways, work through these discussions. And I hear questions like this all the time. What's the Lord's will for my life and how will I know? You see, I think what the Christian also does, just like this boy, is the Christian should also look for meaning in life. But our standard of meaning, our, our, our kind of metric for meaning is, of course, is totally different. We don't live for the same patterns of this world. We don't live for the moments and for the kind of existential joys that, that, that this life can bring here on earth only. But we want our life to count in the kingdom. We want it to have eternal meaning, right? And so our text this morning, I think, gets at one main idea, one key idea. And so I titled our message, God's Will for Your Life. And so if you're wondering what God's will for your life is, well, stay tuned, stay awake. I will tell you what God's will for your life is according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians. Let's look again closely at verse 23 and 24. Paul says, now may the God of peace sanctify, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who has called you is faithful and he will surely do it. So my main point is simply this, is that God's will for your life is your sanctification. That's God's will for your life, according to 2 Thessalonians, is your sanctification. And from here, we'll make two observations, two implications, two reasons why I think Paul is telling us God's will for our life is our sanctification. But the main idea is simply this, if you're taking notes, that God's will for your life is your sanctification. What does that mean? It's a great question. The word to sanctify means to be set apart, to be made whole, particularly holiness, to be made more into the image of God. God has set his children aside. He's taken them out of the world, not literally, but he's taken their patterns, their behaviors, their purposes out from what the rest of the world looks like. And he set us aside. He set his children's, his children's lives aside for his own work, for his purposes which all at the end ultimately is all for his glory. And so as much as you and I are very much a part of our own lives here on earth and we make decisions and we do things and we wake up and we eat and we go back to sleep again, as much as we're kind of the center of our own life in that sense, we're the sort of the, the, the main character, it's the Lord's work in you, which is what sanctifies you. In the same way that your salvation is by grace through faith, not something that you, you made or you created or you generated on your own doing, as Paul tells us elsewhere, much like salvation is not from you, sanctification is not from you either. It is the work of the Lord by his spirit through his word in you also. And the word he says is, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. When you think about completeness, it, it means a wholeness. Every, every part of you, the NIV says through and through. So that you would be made holy or you would be made sanctified through and through to the core of every fiber of your being. You would be made holy. You would be made more like Jesus. That's, the, that's God's will for your life, that you would be sanctified. Every part of you, your body, your soul, and your spirit would be made pure. 
immaterial and material, the physical part of, of you, the spiritual part of you, the, the, the parts of you that you can see and touch and feel, and the parts of you that you can feel in your heart. And the way we do this, according to the Apostle Paul, is by abstaining from every kind of evil. We would pursue holiness by not being involved in everything that the world has to offer, as though that were the only purpose in life. But what we'll see is, according to the Apostle Paul, I think in this letter is your holiness, your sanctification is, is a lot less to do with uh, the things that you do or don't do and has a lot more to do with who you are and who you become and who you allow God to shape you to be. So it isn't only doing the right things, though that matters as well, as we'll see. And a lot of the New Testament and many of the epistles outline Christian behaviors, morals, what, what should life look like? but it has less to do with doing the right things and completing the right tasks as it does about your character, about your soul and your heart and your pursuit of godliness in your life. That's what is meant by that every part of you, body, soul, and spirit would be made pure. It isn't only about doing the right things or getting it right, getting an A on the report card, but it's about who you become. Let's flip back one page in your Bible. It should just be one page to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to help expand this a little bit by painting maybe a bit of a broader picture about holiness and sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 7 say this, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so all the more. So this is an encouragement. He's saying, just as you already know, do this, do it more and more. Verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he, he comes close to home for them. He gets really specific. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you, or part of each one of you, know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions and lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. God's not called his children for impurity, but he set them aside for holiness. That word holiness and sanctification is the same root word. It's the same word in the original language, in the Greek language. It means that God has set you apart for himself and he's done this from the beginning. Right on the first page of scripture, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he made everything and he called it good. He gave Adam and Eve a job. And the, the, the thing that we're told is different from Adam and Eve is, I mean, they had names, but God made them in his image. They were image bearers in the garden. They were different than the tigers and the animals and the plants and the fish. They were image bearers of God. They were given responsibility and a job as caretakers of creation. God set them apart for his purposes. And we see that as humanity got you know, developed as you, as you read through the stories of scripture, you see that there was a nation of Israel and they had rebelled and God was gonna fulfill this great promise to enter a land. As, as they were doing that, God gave them specific instruction as they were to enter the land of Canaan that they were to keep themselves from the things that God had devoted for destruction. He basically tells them, listen, you're gonna get there, things are gonna be shiny, the food's gonna be really good and you're gonna be really tempted to marry all the pretty ladies, but he says, don't do it. Don't, don't, don't follow those patterns. I've set you apart. He says to flee foreign gods, flee foreign wives because they're set apart for a purpose. In the New Testament, 
the, uh, James writes to us, to his readers, he writes that pure and undefiled religion before God is to keep oneself unstained from the world. I've, I've ruined a good number of clothes by having stains on them. Uh, sometimes it's me, sometimes it's my kids, and my wife doesn't know the difference, so that's fine because they just, she just sees, oh, he got his shirt dirty again. But when you get a stain in a garment, most of the time you can't get it out. It's, 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 it's forever impacted, and that stain represents some kind of defilement. And so the call for New Testament Christians is to be unstained from the world. We still live in it. We're still very much in the world and, and, and a part of it, and we live in houses on the same streets, and we go to the same workplaces, and we, we, we do life with unbelievers and with, with evil present, but our encouragement, our, our instruction is to be unstained from the world. And so as Christians do this, as, as we do this, we often ask the question, well, what would God have me do here? Would God have me go to this school or that school or pursue this person or that person? And I think we walk as though our, our life or God's will for us is like a tightrope. And we, and we better just make, get the next step right and worry one step at a time. What's, what would God have me do here and here and here? And we walk down life as though it's a tightrope. But the problem with that is that that makes us have to be really good guessers. We have to just hope that we made the right call because if we fall off the tightrope, well, you've, you've got another problem on your hands. And so if God's will for you is a tightrope, it really puts a lot of the responsibility on us to make sure we're, we're doing things really right and proper and we're always making the right choice. I went to Bible school with, with, with a guy and uh, one of his practices in the morning was he would pray and he would seek the Lord for what outfit he should wear. And I'm not kidding, I'm not making this up but he would ask the Lord what outfit to wear. And he was convinced that the Lord has ordained everything, including your outfit and including which cereal he chooses. And he would go to the Lord almost all the time, every day, even though the scriptures tell us to do that too. He would go to the Lord and agonize over every little decision as though life were a tightrope of just making sure you do the right thing. But I don't think God's will for us is like a tightrope at all. Uh, one of the things that the, uh, I, I enjoy when I go to the US is I enjoy driving in the US because their highways are just a beautiful thing. The interstates, right? There, there are eight, 10, 12, 14 lanes and you can drive and you know you're gonna get where you're going and there's, got, there's, there's, there's big barriers on each side so you know you're, you're on the right track. Just stay on the interstate. And often I wonder if God's will for us isn't a little bit more like a freeway than it is a tightrope, wherein we have God's, God's word primarily. We have theological and moral boundaries set up, set up for us as his children, which serve as boundaries. And within those, there are lots of things in life, as you know, for which there are no chapter and verse to turn to. Like which school should I go to or which investment, where should I put my money? Or how should I, how long should I cut my grass? All these kinds of things, we ought not agonize over them because God's will for your life has a lot less to do with those kinds of things and a lot more to do with the bigger things, the things of the heart. Now, that's certainly not to say that God doesn't know what you will eat for breakfast or what socks you will wear, but it's to say that God oftentimes doesn't want us to be distracted and worrying about what his will is for us in those small things. We'll come back to this thought in a moment. But the primary point with sanctification is that it's not about us doing or choosing or making the right choice all the time, but it's about God's work through his spirit at work within us. And in between... In all those lanes of the freeway, there's an incredible amount of freedom. 
So has God preordained every moment of your life? Has he established it? Does he know how many hairs are on your head? Absolutely. Does he know all of those things without one single moment of question? But his, his interest is that we would be refined, that we would be sanctified like, like a gem or a rock that gets put in a tumbler or a ring. Something precious gets more and more refined as it gets turned. That's God's will for us, that we would become more like Christ and not just simply do the right things. So the main point is simply this, that God's will for your life is your sanctification. And the next, the remainder of our time, I wanna look at two, two rules or two reasons for that. And the first is that it's for our good. And the second is that it's for God's glory. One of the things my family does at home is we try to be intentional with mealtimes. And if you join us for a meal, you might go, really, are you intentional with those? It doesn't always work. We don't always succeed. But our, our goal anyway is when we sit down for mealtimes, especially dinner, breakfast and dinner are big in our house because we're all together. And so we try and make sure we're all at the table. And even though the kids want to eat on the trampoline or on the roof of the car or wherever they want to eat, we try and we try and establish a bit of a rhythm that, no, no, we're going to eat together and we're going to talk and we're going to just do life together and hear. My son's in school now, so there's lots to talk about. So even though they don't want to do that or they don't want to eat the food that we've prepared for them, they've got their own ideas. We try and reel them in. Question for you, does that make us harsh? Does that make us bad parents because we we're asking our kids to do things that they don't want to do? Well, of course not. Because at the end, at the end of the day, when they're 18 and 19 and 20, my hope is that our kids trust us, that we've had enough meals together, we've established a good enough pattern that they trust me, that they'll come to me with things and that, that we can do dinners together. There's an incredible, uh, something happens when you share a meal with someone. And so that's something we've tried to integrate into our, into our habit. The point is this, is that it's actually for my children's good. At the end of the day, it's for their good that we do dinner today. It's for their good 10, 15 years from now that we have dinner today. It's ultimately for their good, even though it's not something they want. And when we look at the things that Paul has set out for us here in our text today from 1 Thessalonians 5, we see that there's some instructions. And I think the same is true of these instructions, that they are for our good. They're for the good of the church so that our faith would flourish. They're God's plan for us. So let's look at a few of them. Let's look at where he talks about living in community and elsewhere in scripture. It's all over the place. Did you know that it's actually good for you, for your faith, to be in fellowship with other believers? And if you've been here or a part of a church, if you're visiting and you have a home church, you'll know the benefit that it is to your own soul to have brothers and sisters who you see frequently. If you're a part of a life group or a, a prayer group or you have regular fellowship with people, you'll know the benefit that it is for you to have community because God has ordained it as such that our faith would flourish when we're in fellowship with other believers. So we have a call to meet together, not because God's a big meanie, but because it's actually good for our hearts. What about where Paul talks about rejoicing always? I don't know about you, but I don't always feel like rejoicing. But in Proverbs 17, it says a joyful heart is like good medicine. Did you know that being thankful will lead to joy? By choosing thankfulness, by choosing gratitude, you're seeking joy, which joy is a gift from God. Joy is a good thing for us. Let's look at another one. These instructions for being good to others. Paul says here, don't repay evil for evil, but do good to others and everyone. Do good, be kind. Be nice. Did you know that by being kind and nice, that will help your Christian witness to your unsaved neighbors and coworkers, family members and friends? 
Did you know that you'll have a better time? It'll be easy for, easier for you to witness, to eventually share the love of Jesus with them if they like you, if you're kind. If you're abrasive and stingy and grumpy all the time, that's, that's a very hard sort of you know, platform to build a relationship on when you're not really that pleasant to be around. So these commands to be kind, to be good, these are because this is who God is and he wants us to live in such a way. Let's look at another one. Your battle against sin and temptation, which is very real in our world. We're all lured and enticed away by things. Did you know that you're more successful in your battle against sin and temptation when you have accountability? Paul tells the church here to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak, be patient with them. If you're part of a life group or a men's group or a women's group or any kind of group, you'll know the strength and the courage that comes from fellowship, from accountability, from people saying, hey, you told me you were really struggling with that. How's that going? Your faith is more likely to flourish in fellowship where there's accountability and admonition. One final one. Did you know, it's, it's interesting to me, I, I, I try and stay current on some different, different things in the world, a little bit of science, a little bit of a little bit across the board. And one of the things I came across recently was that secular scientists, okay, so not even people who are concerned about the things of God and the scripture, but science and data and research has shown that within the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife, that pornography is destructive. The effects of pornography on a marriage are destructive, scientifically speaking. So in other words, you don't even need a Bible to tell you that pornography is, is, is gonna have some implications on your marriage if you're married. But that word that, that Paul uses here in the passage we looked at in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, that word is, translates to sexual immorality, which would encompass anything outside of marriage, anything outside of God's bounds for sexuality. It's destructive. But the amazing thing is you don't even have to look at the scriptures. You can look around in, in the world and you can see marriages that have failed. Maybe you know people whose marriages have failed because of sexual immorality. It is good for you to follow what the Lord has laid out. It's good for your soul. It's good for your relationships. It's good for your marriage. But the opposite is true. That sin will destroy those areas. And I think sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that there's actually something better for us on the other side. That if we just go outside those boundaries, there's actually something better for us as though God is, God's keeping something from us. But I can tell you that the, the, the demands of God for his children will never withhold good from them. It says in Psalm 84, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It says in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. With you and in your right hand, there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Did you know that God's way happens to also be the best thing? It's good for you. So what do we do when we come to the specific things for which there is no chapter and verse? How do we, how do we honor God with those things, with those areas in which we're, we're free? To, it seems like we're free to make a choice. Well, I think we use the scriptures. We use what we know. We, we use what we know is true about God and his character. We use our brains to make a call, to make a judgment that would honor the Lord in that decision. We seek wisdom from our brothers and sisters, from our church family, from people who have been mentors to you, from your parents, from people you trust. You can ask questions like, will this thing, this opportunity? You can ask questions like, will it draw me closer or will it pull me away from a pursuit of Jesus? 
You can ask questions like, will this thing or this opportunity or this pursuit, will it cause me to be more sanctified on the other side or will it cause me to be less sanctified? Will I look more like Jesus in the pursuit of this or will I look less like Jesus? Will it reflect the work of the gospel in my life? You can ask questions like, will this thing have an eternal benefit? And you can use those kinds of guidelines to help you work within the framework of sanctification for your life. There's piles of freedom within God's will for your life. There's also things in life, your lot in life, there are things that you have not gotten to choose though, right? There's things that are difficult, there's things that are great in all of our lives that we did not choose. So what do we do there? Things like what kind of family you'll be born into or what kind of family you'll, you'll raise. I don't know how my kids will turn out. That's outside of, in some ways, outside of my control. Or what about what kind of landlord you have? Or what about what kind of sickness you get or your family member gets or your friend gets? What kind of trials will I face? What kind of crises will come my way? How do we serve the Lord? How do we do God's will for us in those circumstances that we can't choose? Well, we look at verse 16, 17, and 18. It says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I think you can assume that God has a purpose in all those things, in anything that happens. If you're ever unsure, don't presuppose that God doesn't have a plan just because you can't possibly conceive what it is. God asks Job, are you, are you in my place? Are you God? I'm sorry, Job. I have a friend who within the recent years, he was experiencing just a lot of pain. He was in a great deal of discomfort and they weren't really sure why. His doctor, they weren't sure. And eventually through a series of tests and appointments and all these things, they discovered that he had Crohn's disease. And I don't know, I'm not an expert in, in medicine or certainly in Crohn's disease, but it's really painful. And sometimes there's a cure, sometimes they can treat it, sometimes they can do surgery, but it isn't always successful. And so he was wondering, well, what, what's God doing with this Crohn? Why do I have it? I, I certainly would rather not having Crohn's. Thank you very much. So I asked him one day, I said, what do, you think, what do you think the Lord might be doing in your life through this situation, through your health? And he said to me something incredibly profound. He said, I think there's three possibilities. He said, I think the first is that there will be a miraculous, unexplainable healing for the glory of God, that, that one day it'll be gone, that it'll disappear, and it'll be a miracle to God's glory. Maybe. He said, option two is that it's, it's the end of me, that maybe it takes my life, that maybe this is my lot in life, is that the Lord takes me to this disease, maybe. The third option, though, he said, is that maybe the third option is that the Lord's gonna sanctify me through this, that I'm gonna learn to deal with it. I'm gonna learn to live with this condition, with this. So in the meantime, he's gonna pursue the treatment. He's gonna pursue the recovery, but he doesn't know what's God's lot for him in this, what's God's specific purpose in these areas. And regardless, whether God chooses to heal him, God chooses to take him home, or whether God chooses to sanctify him through, it's all for God's glory and his good. Because that's how God functions. The reason I know that is because that's who God is. God is faithful. He's faithful and he always works his, his purposes for good and his glory. It says in Romans 8, verses 28 through till 30, he says this, we know that, the, that for those who love God, for God's children, for those who love God, all things work together for good. It doesn't say it works all things for our preference or our comfort or our 
convenience or to our desires, but he says, God, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, co- to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, there's a process. You and I are on a journey. If you're a child of God, you're on a journey to salvation. You've, you've received it. You've been chosen. You've been foreknown. You've been called. You're being sanctified. And one day you will be glorified. But God is the one who carries these things through. So God's means are good and the ends are his glory, which is our final point. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but God's purpose, do you know what God's purpose is? It's it's not to save you and me or to save as many people as he can. And that may seem wrong or, or scandalous. God's purpose is his glory. God exists for his glory. He doesn't exist for anything apart for himself for his glory. But God is glorified in salvation. God is glorified when we glorify him. And so God receives glory through salvation and works all things for his glory, which is why Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good because God is good, because that's who he is. That's his nature. That's his essence. We can depend on him. This work of salvation began forever ago. And I mean that quite literally, forever ago, God appointed all things. This process of salvation for his children began eternity past where God foreknew you. He chose you. Salvation didn't start with you. Salvation won't end with you. God chose you. He foreknew those. It says that if he foreknew those for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be sanctified, to be conformed into the image of his son. Your purpose, once again, is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That when you die and you are in front of the Lord, that you would look like Christ through your life, through your conduct, through your character, your heart, your soul would be Christ-like. That word predestination makes some people uncomfortable. I get that. It can be a thorny word with lots of connotations around it. But what I simply want you to understand is that if, if, if you receive a plane ticket to, let's say, Toronto, you've been predestined. That, that'll be your destination. You're predestined for Toronto. God has predestined us to be made into the likeness of his son. He's predestined us for his salvation and sanctification. It says that we've been called. And I think specifically for God's children, it means that you've specifically been called. There's also a call, though, that goes beyond that, an indiscriminate call for all people, despite color of skin or where you live on the globe or whether you, whatever, whatever. If you're a human being, there's a call for salvation to you a general wide call, but there's an effective call for God's children, for those whom God appoints and God chooses to seek after him. And once you've been called, you are then on that journey of sanctification, of becoming like Christ. And it will end when we are glorified at the return of Christ, which I think is what the apostle Paul in this letter gets at is that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. So the goal, the the ultimate ends for you and for me, our purpose is that we would be ready that there would be a readiness for the return of Christ. So I think for us, there's a great deal of, of rest. If you're chosen by God, he will secure you. Paul says he's faithful. He will do it. 
You don't have to worry about stepping off the tightrope wrong because if you're on the superhighway between, between God's uh, moral and theological bounds and you're headed for Christ-likeness, there's some freedom to choose. You can choose what university you go to. You can choose your spouse. You can choose your cereal. We have some freedom. You don't have to worry about, about messing up God's plans for your life. You've ever read the story of Balaam and his donkey? God used a donkey to rebuke a man. So if God can use a donkey, surely there's hope for you and me. You will not overrule God's sovereignty. So don't underrate God's superintendence over all things. From eternity past to eternity to come, God is superintendent and sovereign over all things. You don't have to worry about thwarting his plans. That's why Paul says he is faithful. He will surely do it. He will carry you through. Jesus says to his disciples in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And get this, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus knows whom are his and he will preserve them for the day of his return. So now what? We're here, Christ is coming. Now what? A lot of Second Thessalonians speaks of the imminent return of Christ. We're in what the New Testament says are the last days. And so we'll resume our series in Second Thessalonians and we'll study more about this. But what we know is that there is a sure return of Christ and it will be a day of relief. It will be a day of rejoicing for those who are found in the fold of God. But as we learned two weeks ago, it'll also be a day of, of anguish for those who aren't. If you're outside of God's fold, if you have not repented and found saving faith in Jesus, it will not be a pleasant time. So what are you gonna do about the return of Christ? This is the question I wanna leave you with. I think there's, there's a few responses. One is to ignore it. One's to reject it and say, that's, that's, that can't be. Another one is to be ambivalent or indifferent to it and have it not change anything. But another one is to repent and obey and seek the Lord. And the first two lead to idleness, which is what I think what Paul says. Don't, don't be idle. Take this seriously. Don't reject it. Don't be indifferent. But seek after the Lord. But whether or not you accept something to be true, whether or not collections is after you for that unpaid bill, whether or not you believe that they're after you, you owe them money. There, there, there's a reality that even if you choose to ignore it or you're delusional, it, it, it's still happening. And so whether you, even if you reject the return of Christ, it is coming. We can be sure of that. So how are you spending your last days? How are you spending your last days? How are you being sanctified and refined for holiness, for God's purposes? Christ is coming back. We're in the last days. So what are you doing? I worked a job when I was in college and I worked in construction doing renovations and stuff. And one of the things I loved about it was the diversity and the freedom because oftentimes I would work alone, unsupervised. My boss trusted me to do the job and do it well and leave when it's over. But he would come back to check in from time to time. And that's the thing I liked the least was that I never knew when he was coming back. I never knew when to expect him. But I always had to be ready. I always had to make sure that I was on task, that I was being diligent, I was being faithful, I was using my time well, I was using the materials well so that when he came back, I could give a good account and say, look what I've done. Look how faithful I've been with the wage you're paying me. Look how faithful I've been with these resources. Because I want my boss, my taskmaster, to be delighted in me, to take delight in, to be glorified in my work. 
God wants to be glorified by our work as we prepare for his return, for his coming return. Jesus says this in John 15, by this my father is glorified if you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. You see, what we describe, what we, what we looked at, this description in our text this morning describes the fruit of a disciple. So my prayer for us is that we would be people who glorify God, that we would bear much fruit and in so doing that we would become more like Jesus, that we would be prepared for his return, which is sure and soon. Let's pray. Father, help us to be, again, not readers and hearers only of your word, but doers. Thank you, Lord, that you exist beyond time, beyond the physical world of the here and now where it seems to be so linear and in some ways so futile. Lord, you've, um, you've tra- you've, you transcend that. You've created this. And Father, in the here and now, you've given us a job. You've given us a purpose. You've given us what we need for a life of godliness and purity. So Lord, help us to do that. Lord, help us to flee from the things that will draw us away from you. Help us to turn from wickedness and evil. Lord, that we would be found spotless and blameless and rather be found faithful at the return of Jesus. Lord, help us in this, I pray. Amen. I invite you to stand.